Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today is Ms. Nazli Sharif from the Democratic Alliance, who is a member of parliament. She serves on the Portfolio Committee on Multi-Party Women's Caucus, as well as the Portfolio Committee on Women, Youth and Persons with Disabilities. She joins us today in our series covering perspectives from women across political parties in the country. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to engaging on very important issues and I can't wait to see where our conversation takes us. Coincidentally, our recording falls in with Freedom Day, which is commemorated on 27th of April and marks the first democratic elections in post-apartheid South Africa. And with that, the rights, as well as, I would say, the responsibilities that are associated with freedom. So to kick off, please tell us, what does Freedom Day mean to you? Um, Thank you for that question. Um, Absolutely. I think, you know, we have come a very long way since our apartheid past, but we still are very much haunted by the legacies um, that stay within our country. And even though it is a celebration for democracy and we're able to say we've come this far um, with a constitutional democracy, our constitution being one of the greatest um, in the world, unfortunately for me, um, Freedom Day means that and it, it, it shows that there are indeed many of us in South Africa that are not free. Um, we have the murders of the LGBTIQA plus community. If our members of the LGBTIQA plus community is not free to be themselves, to love who they want to love, and to ensure that they live the best life possible, then how can we as a country celebrate Freedom Day? Um, you know, I think about women and I think about the fact that so many women are still oppressed, we still are left out of uh, the economic um, circle to ensure that our lives, our children's lives, our family lives are improved. Um, When that is not happening, then I don't think we have a lot to be free. Um, When we look at the vaccines and the, the slow amount of of, of time and the lack of effort in ensuring that South Africans are are vaccinated. Not only does it continue to put strain on the medical professional, which you will find most are women um, and women nurses working under extreme conditions, then we are not free. We cannot celebrate or commemorate Freedom Day unless each and every South African is free under the Constitution. And I know that this sounds very negative and you know we need to look at what's great in South Africa and there's many great things um, that we can look at in South Africa but once we speak about basic human rights that's where the conversations need to be happening. Those human rights are fundamentals. I mean, they're declared in the Universal Declaration on on Human Rights, which really pays attention to multiple aspects, whether it's from a gender point of view, whether it is from an education perspective, that until those inequalities are ironed out, no one actually can say that they're, they're completely free. From a political point of view, South Africa is a multi-party democracy. 
Today, our National Assembly is composed of 14 political parties, and Parliament has specific committees which you represent, um, which represent women from different uh, different spaces, so one being the multi-party women's caucus. And one of the issues that it addresses is gender-responsive planning as well as a budgeting framework. Can you tell us more about this particular committee and some of the work that it does in more detail? Um, absolutely. Um, the Multi-Party Women's Caucus is one of the forums that brings different political parties together. But I would argue that portfolio committees serve the same purpose, um, where it brings different political parties um, by proportion, of course, representation by proportion. So depending on how many votes your political party gets in the election will determine how many seats in Parliament you get, obviously, and also how many seats you get in portfolio committees, and it will work the same in the multi-party women's caucus. Now, the, multi, the national multi-party women's caucus, um, our aim is to put women at the centre of the agenda, both internally and externally. And this is very important because even though um, we are a, a forum of uh, women parliamentarians uh, that come from all different political parties, so, so how, how we run is we have a, a, a committee, so, so the committee that sets up the agenda, and then we then present it to the wider um, committee, which all women in any political party um, falls within membership of the multi-party women's caucus. Um, and so what we do is we look at um, women empowerment, we look at um, frameworks, we look at um, systems and processes within government, we look at different departments and basically see how we as women can contribute to ensuring that not only women in South Africa are emancipated, but women parliamentarians are emancipated. You know, I'm, I'm a young woman. Um, my birthday is next month and I turn 31. I'm really excited to level up. I feel like when you grow older, it's a level up, not necessarily getting older. Um, and when I went into parliament, this is my first term, um, I don't have any kids, I'm not married, but one of the first things that came to my mind is what happens if I happen to fall pregnant tomorrow and I'm a parliamentarian, I'm elected in Gauteng, so my constituency is in Soweto, um, so it's in Johannesburg, and parliament is in Cape Town. And so I noticed that there isn't a lot of um, systems in place to assist women parliamentarians when they're having children or when they have kids um, or being able to cope with the family life and being a parliamentarian at the same time. And so this is one of the, the aspects of the Women's Caucus that we look at how do we ensure that women parliamentarians are capacitated so that we are able to represent women um, properly. And I think it's amazing. You know, I tell you, because even though we're from different political parties, we're able to speak to each other as women. We're able to understand the experience of each other as women. Um, and we're able to get to know each other a little bit better because politicians, you know, you, you see us and it seems as if we are two completely different sides of the spectrum. But there are many issues that brings us together, and the Women's Caucus is one of those forums that allows that to happen. And often when you've got different political views, it can tend towards an aspect of, well, a degree of fragmentation. And when you have fragmentation, you lose focus of the core and what's actually important. So hearing what you're saying, I must say is very comforting that women's issues 
take central focus within the multi-party women's caucus. And when you've got everyone focused on one particular topic, it helps to unify and, and drive progress. Um, absolutely, but it's it's not like that all the time, right? <laughs> so I've had instances where we at the multi-party women's caucus and you have political parties bringing in their own political um, stances or their manifestos or what they believe is right. And there has been times where the chairperson has had to reprimand the caucus and say, leave your political hat outside and wear your woman hat inside. Um, and then, you know, we're all get right and be like, actually, you know, we're losing focus and we need to come back together. Um, so it's a natural thing. I suppose um, human beings have a tendency to bring their opinions and assume that their opinions are better. But we always and when we're in those forums and the individual people in those forums, it is up to us to, to, to make that switch and say, you know what, even though I'm dealing with the ANC, the EFF, the ACVP, the Freedom Front Plus, I am a woman, we are all women, and we need to look at the women's issues. And once that starts to happen on an individual level, you'll find that things start to change. You mentioned that this is your first term in Parliament, and you are a relatively young MP. Tell us about your, your journey into politics. What got you started and interested? Oh, man, that's a couple of years ago. So <laughs> I joined politics in the in 2009 um, at my first year at Wits University. I joined the Democratic Alliance Student Organization. And I joined the DA because I honestly and truly believe that the DA is the only party in South Africa that can bring a necessary change in order to change our social fabric um, and ensure that we have opportunities for every single South African in this country. And, you know, being part of the DA has never been easy because it seems as if the DA is you know, one of the parties that people find easy to criticize because we're so diverse and we, you know, have so many different people that represent different things because we all come from different backgrounds. I mean, if you look at the DA and its leadership, which I'm sure we'll speak about later, we have a different array of people coming together for one common cause. And so I joined the DA. The DA was my party of choice. Um, I wasn't going to join any other political party, especially um, because of my values and growing up with a single mom. You know, I learned liberalism from a very young age, um, being able to choose for myself, being able to think for myself and being able to use my talents and, and, and hard work in order to get somewhere in life. So I was an activist for six years. I led the DASO branch at Wits University for two years. Um, I then did my honors degree, I then went into my master's, and when I was doing my master's, I was elected uh, for my first term as a proportional representative counselor in the city of Johannesburg, um, and I was really excited because this was my first opportunity as a public rep. I then served on the portfolio committee of gender, youth, and uh, persons with disabilities, as well as various other um, committees. I was then elected again in 2019 as a PR counselor, but I was also elected as the youngest chairperson 
um, for gender, youth, and persons with disabilities. I loved it. We did amazing things. Um, in fact, we, we had the first ever LGBTIQA plus stakeholder engagement where we went across Johannesburg and we spoke to members of the LGBT and put together recommendations. Unfortunately, I had to leave the city of Johannesburg in 2019 because I was then elected um, as a member of parliament. Um, it's been an interesting journey. I am very grateful that I'm able to serve my country at such a young age and bring um, new ideas um, to the forefront and look at and being able to look at things differently. Um, the work I do is very important. Um, I speak specifically um, serving on women, youth, and persons with disabilities. Uh, my issue driving is GB, gender-based violence and femicide, as well as looking at um, women empowerment and emancipation and how we can bring women to a level where they're able to compete fairly um, amongst men who have so many opportunities simply based on, 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 on their, their sex. I'm also very passionate. I'm a feminist, um, as, as many would, would know. I'm also very passionate about ensuring um, justice and making sure that choice is and free choice is on the table. Like I said, I, I am a liberal. And so free choice is very important to me as part of a value. So that's my journey. It's been interesting. It's been almost 12 years now that I've been in politics. I've grown a lot and I, I see myself growing even more um, as I move and progress forward within politics. Thanks for sharing your, your journey to where you are today. Some of the points that you mentioned with respect to the work that you're doing in, in the field, so looking at this from aspects of gender-based violence, looking at aspects of women's empowerment and emancipation, uh, access to rights and, and certain freedoms. Can you share with us some of the detail that goes into how are those projects materializing and what outcomes are we going to see come to fruition? Because it's one thing to talk about issues and sure, we know that these are problems, but how are they going to change and what are the types of results that we can expect to see? Great question. And this is something that, you know, whenever we sit in portfolio committee, our main question is how is this going to benefit um, a woman on the ground? How is this going to benefit a young woman, a young disabled woman in Nyanga? Um, how is it going to be felt on the ground so that she benefits from it? Um, and oftentimes being in opposition, it's very frustrating because we don't necessarily see the work being felt on the ground. Um, the DA in um, the Committee of Women, Youth and Persons with Disabilities have undertaken a countrywide oversight tour um, to look at exactly what has been happening on the ground. So we go and we visit the Tutuzela care centers, um, we visit victim empowerment centers, we go to police stations, and we look at the entire system um, of how it's meant to be and what's actually happening on the ground. Um, if, I, if, if I can take viewers back um, to September 2019, um, many would remember that the country came to a complete standstill because women said enough is enough. We are tired of being beaten. We are tired of being raped. We are tired of being murdered. We want to be free. We want to be able to live our lives the way we wanted to live. There was the total shutdown uh, march, which um, I completely supported. And from that came the, the declaration of gender-based violence and femicide, which was then signed by the president. 
straight after that, um, government then went into reactive mode. And I say reactive because, you know, once I explain what has happened, you'll see why I'm saying reactive. Um, they called it the Emergency Response Action Plan, um, so it can respond to gender-based violence and femicide. It was a six-month plan that was allocated $1.6 billion. Brand. Um, from that was going to come the National Strategic Plan, which is about a 74-page plan on what government needs to do in order to combat gender-based violence and femicide. And I want to put it on record that I absolutely support the National Strategic Plan because it has really good ideas um, and it has and it comes from civil society. And it's important to speak to civil society because they are the people who are dealing with this every single day. It is NGOs, it is community organizations, it is ordinary people in communities that deal with these situations every single day. And so what had happened is um, the Interim Steering Committee on Gender-Based Violence and Femicide had been disbanded um, in 2020. And so what happened is we had these plans um, that has not been implemented. And so when we go in, we do oversight and we go to the Tutuzela case centers and we say, have you felt that you have given more support? Because one of the targets were to increase capacity at Tutuzela care centers. And these frontline workers would look at me like they have no idea what I'm talking about. So basically my point is that you're absolutely right. We can have great plans, we can have um, policies in place, we can have legislation, but if it is not implemented and there's no monitoring and evaluation to ensure that these targets are being met, that implementation is happening, that training for SAPs is happening, that training for courts and prosecutors is happening, that Tutuzela care centers are being empowered and being capacitated, then nothing, nothing government does is going to make any difference. Um, and it is up to us as of the opposition to ensure and hold ministers and the president accountable. And this is why I've written to Minister Maite Kuwana Mashabane um, to ask what is the consequence management of her department for not even meeting one of her targets. You know, I, I asked the Minister of Police, I wrote to him and I asked him an official question and I asked, what is current backlog of forensic cases for GBVF? Because we can complain and say there's not enough rape kits, but even if there is enough rape kits, there's not enough staff at, and forensic staff to be able to look at these DNA kits so that we can get prosecution. So when we look at the entire system um, of, 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 of chains of events that need to happen in order for GBV victims to get justice, we'll notice that there are weak areas, and that is the SAPS, that is um, justice, that is um, ensuring that we have enough forensic nurses, um, social workers. So that's basically my job. <laughs> my job is to go out into communities and find out if government is doing what they're saying. If not, hold government accountable um, to make sure that they are doing what they're doing and let South Africans know what their government is failing to do. Um, and that is one way we can hold them accountable. And of course, bring our own solutions, right, um, as with the the accountability aspect is obviously crucial, and that's why you have monitoring and evaluation components coming into the mix. But I can't help but thinking all of the elements that, that you've described, all of the elements that we've been exposed to, whether it is a rape crisis center, whether it is reporting aspects to police, whether it is having enough um, forensic, these all for me are post the event. 
from a social fabric of society, the very acts need to be prevented in the first place, which requires such a greater degree of, of socialization. And from my point of view, when I think about the, the, the cases of that, that poor young girl who committed suicide, but she was assaulted by a female peer, a teenager herself, that there is something very wrong with society's fabric, that those are the aspects that actually need to change. And then we wouldn't have to be dealing with um, all of the services that we put in place to help try and prevent it. Um, you're absolutely right. And these are the thoughts that go through my mind continuously, you know, that we live in an absolutely violent society. You know, reading about the cases of the LGBTIQA plus and, you know, um, speaking about the lack of legislation, I, I did think to myself that, yes, there is a lack of legislation, but there is an intrinsic violent streak within our society that needs to be dealt with. And that comes, you know, the only thing when I think about it, it, it must come from a generational trauma perspective where we have been dealing with so much pain through generations that we have lost touch on how to healthy deal with this pain. And so we automatically turn to violence. And, and, and I wonder, and perhaps um, somebody who has studied violence might have a little bit more insight, but perhaps we need to look at how it is ingrained in human beings um, as a, 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 a human perspective, because obviously we all have you know, the opportunity to, to be good and live with love and live with kindness. But when people are living in in dark holes and when we don't make healing um, available or we don't have access to healing as, as, as a nation, then we will continue to see violent acts and we will have to continue to put plasters um, on these symptoms that we're finding. But I do just want to make a point that even though I agree with you that we're treating the symptoms we have to get these basic systems done and ready and moving like a well-oiled machine in order to deal with the bigger societal issues. If we don't have rape crisis centers or tutuzela care centers working at the optimal level, then dealing with both issues is going to become even more difficult. So for me, I agree, let's deal with a bigger societal issue, but also in, in the same breath, Let's fix our, our current processes and symptoms. And one of the ways we can do this is by school and having classes that um, speak about gender identity, speak about um, consent, speak about what it means for consent, what does no mean, and, and, and how do you deal with your emotions. You know, in fact, if, if, if I had it my way, I would make therapy um, a... a a, a component for every single human being so that we can start learning to deal with our emotions in a healthier way. But until that is done, we have to be able to make sure that um, our government departments and our centers work at its optimal level. As we move away from this point, I just want to provide listeners with a bit of context so that they understand, let's say, the, the scope and the scale that over 90% of sexual offences are committed against women. 
in South Africa. And it's estimated that almost 30% of those crimes go unreported. In the last 10 years, running from 2008 through to 2018, 584,497 sexual offences were reported to SAPS, South African Police Services. So this is an undeniable concern in our country. But as we move away from this and perhaps into, let's say, another cap that you wear in your, uh, let's say, many chapters within the government space, one of the areas as a gender-based program that we constantly focus on is the importance of building female leadership capacity for the future of women in our country and, let's say, the ripple effects into the continent. The public sector, I think, is doing relatively well. We've got a cabinet, probably 50-50 in terms of female to male representation. But the picture of women in corporate leadership in South Africa is appalling. There are various studies that have been compiled, whether it's Grant Thornton, McKinsey, Business Women's Association, South Africa, looking at figures as, as approximate averages. Women only account for 30% of executive managers, 19% of directors, 7% of chairpersons, 4% of CEOs. And these are our average figures. Obviously, they, they change and fluctuate slightly over time. But given that we represent over 52% of the population, we should have considerably better representation within the private sector. How do you see female leadership in South Africa, whether it's political, academic or professional? Um, we have come a long way. Um, but we have a longer way to go. Um, and I'm of the view that the women who are in those spaces, it is up to us to start um, creating more spaces for younger women coming after us. You know, I'm of the opinion that if, I, if, if a young woman has to come in after me and she still has to go through the same struggles that I'm going through, then I have failed. And, and I say this because... Everywhere a woman is, whether it's in a family dynamic, whether it's in corporate, whether it's in politics, whether it's in the NGO sector, whether it's um, anywhere in society, we always have the responsibility to ensure that we create the space for more young women to come through. And, you know, oftentimes, and, and this could be a little bit controversial, but I want to speak about it. Um, I've had instances where women have tried to keep me out of, of places where Women have chopped down the table instead of making the table bigger because it's felt that only one woman is can be here and I'm going to be that woman. And that sort of mentality is what's keeping a lot of us behind. And we don't often want to speak about it because, you know, um, it, it's a bit of a touchy subject, but we have to speak about it as women. And when you when you raise that point, because it's something that, that I, I hear and it, it prompted me to go and investigate it further. And part of that stems from the fact where we will be given arbitrary quotas, where an entity will say, uh, we can have 20% women, or we can have 30% women. So if there is only one space available, that's where it breeds unnecessary competition. <laughs> the competition goes a bit further, right? If we look at it from a societal perspective, um, we compete for the attention um, to get married. We compete for, um, you know, um, 
being able to, you know, go into different spaces for friends, for relationships, you know. Um, women are constantly competing against each other and it starts from a very young age. And that's where I think we need to start unlearning many of what we have been taught because patriarchy in itself is that. It, 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 it's an extension of patriarchy that we perpetuate as women. And so for me, as an example, I've never had a mentor. So I started a mentorship program where I'm taking two young women um, that is interested in politics and just teaching them what it's like and, and campaigning, door-to-door um, strategy, policy, just imparting my knowledge onto them so that they can be able to create more space for more women around them. So I think that we have great potential in this country. I think we have amazing women doing amazing things. I just think it's up to us to start opening and creating more spaces. So when you are in a leadership position and they say only 20% women, you can put in a counter argument and say, actually, no, let's do 40% women, let's do 50% women. So we start using the power that we have fought so hard to get. I, I really like what you're saying there in terms of being able to change the system from within, not taking no for an answer, where if you look at it logically, half of the elements that have been imposed upon us make absolutely no sense. And it is only through the efforts of women in leadership who've been able to drive this change for the benefit of, of other generations. Knowing what you know today and thinking about the future for women, what else do you think needs to be put in place to help ensure that we really get towards greater equality sooner rather than later? For me, I think it always starts at home. I think we need to start breaking the barriers of patriarchy at home in a family level with your friends, with your peers. Um, in every space that you come across, we need to start breaking those stereotypes that women are a certain way and women can only do certain things. Um, and we need to continue breaking those glass ceilings. Um, we need to ensure, and this is so important, um, women and all those who identify as women to start picking each other up. It's very easy for us to um, think about negative thoughts, think about, um, I could have done it better, she's not doing a good job. And let's work on capacitating each other. You know, I don't know everything, you don't know everything, but if we come together, we can both learn about each other. And I think that's so important. And I wish I had known this. Growing up, you know, um, I, I suppose growing up in a single in a single parent household with just women, um, all I know is to be surrounded by strong women, and so I have that that benefit of 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 being surrounded by strong women constantly. And you know, my mother was one of the strongest women I know, and 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 I, I dedicate everything I am and who I am to 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 her, um, and and I miss her every day. I, I hope her soul rests in peace. So for me, it's about making the table wider, uh, bridging the gap, and making sure that we are safe whenever we are together. You know, when I see a woman, I want her to know that she's safe with me around, and I want to know that I'm safe with her around. And I think if we come together and we mobilize, we can see um, a better future, not only for us, but for our daughters and our granddaughters. 
And those who are different, those who identify as LGBTIQA+, uh, we are their allies and we need to stand up for them um, when they are not being heard. So that's what I would say. Thank you for all those points. We had touched on some of the elements of your life as you were growing up through your career, whether it's at university, the influence of your mum. One of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show, and this is with the view of, of taking away those learnings in the same way that you speak about mentorship and being able to give back instead of people having to walk through your journey, let them walk through their own journey and rise off of your shoulders and the paths that you've taken. So given that, what would you say have been some of the factors that you consider contributed towards your success? I think, honestly, I have always been straight to my values. Um, I am a change maker and I'm using politics as the vehicle for change. Um, and many people use different vehicles um, for what suits them, and I have chosen politics. And I think one of the reasons that I am here today and I am so proud to represent my country as a, as a member of parliament is honestly believing that I can make a difference. And even if I make a difference in one woman's life, I feel like I have done something important and, and that has and that is what keeps me going is just to make a difference with my hands. Not with my voice, with my hands. <laughs> we all have platforms and how we affect those platforms to achieve our respective agendas is is very fulfilling. You mentioned your mom as being instrumental in your life. Who have been some of the other strong women that have been strong influences? Um, you know, it's it's an interesting one. You know, we spoke about how women have historically, you know, felt that, uh, you know, there's not, you know, I, I, I grew up in a family where the women, the older women were not necessarily always supportive. Of us, and so my mom sheltered myself and my sister a lot from the negative energy from um, the other women in our lives. Um, but as I grow older and I look at the younger women in my family, man, they inspire me. Their resilience, um, their their optimism, their want for a better life and their need to change society is a beautiful thing. And so I I find myself playing the role that I wish I had had when I was younger. And so naturally, you look outside of, of your family structure and you find women um, that mean so much to you. And I'm going to be honest with your viewers, don't laugh at me, but growing up, Disney princesses were some of the women that I looked up to, you know, uh, Pocahontas was one of the, 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 the Disney princesses I looked at and I thought, oh my word, she looks like me, but also she's so strong and she's got this. And, you know, more recently I look at Kamala Harris and, and I think, you know, a, a, again, she looks just like me, mixed race heritage, and she is the vice president of the USA. It blows my mind every single day. Um, I look at women like Helen Ziller, 
um, who has come out of odds and continues to keep her vision and her opinion. And even though people may not agree with her, you cannot argue that you know who she is and you know what she stands for. Um, and this is why I joined the DA. I joined the DA because I saw strong women in the party standing up for themselves. Um, Winnie Mandela, um, Helen Sussman, and even though they have such different experiences, they stood for what they believed in, and I am all about that. Lastly, as we close out the show today, please can you share a few words of inspiration or wisdom that commemorate Freedom Day for girls and women who are listening to us on the continent? Okay, um, this is a very important part because I know that my words have power. So let me say this, believe in yourself all the time. Society is going to see that you're a strong woman and that you know what you want and you're going to go for it and they're going to come at you and make you doubt yourself. Don't allow them. Don't allow their voices and their words to penetrate through you and make you believe that you're not worth it because you are. Don't let society dictate or determine who you are as a person because you are beautiful and you know what you're capable of. I have had many people from across the board tell me that I am not enough and I'm not worthy, and I believe them. And I'm here to tell you not to believe them because now I know better. And we are worth freedom, we are worth love, unconditional love, we are worthy to receive and give unconditional love. We are unique, and women, we are the creators of life. Don't let anybody tell you any different. We are the creator and we are the creation. And don't ever forget your power because you are very powerful. And they're going to want to take it away from you, but don't let them do it. That's what I would say. Thank you for that great message, uh, particularly in the spirit of celebrating Freedom Day and what it means. And we wish you all of the very best. Continue to be the change maker that you are, the champion of women's rights and driving things to make not just South Africa a better place, but the continent. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, if any of your viewers want to connect, um, I am on Facebook at Nasli Sharif MP. Reach out to me if you want to speak about the work I do. If you want to get involved, let's do it. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Ms. Nasli Sharif from the Democratic Alliance, who is a member of parliament and serving on the portfolio committees of the Multi-Party Women's Caucus, as well as the portfolio committee on women, youth and persons with disabilities.